0: I'm going to be reading from Exodus 15, verse 21 to 21, and it's just a song that Miriam was singing to everybody once the Israelites had finally crossed the Red Sea and escaped from Pharaoh, and the Israelites sang the song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver, he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior, and in his name, Pharaoh's chariots and his armies he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the sea. The deep waters has covered them, and they sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you drew down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger, it consumed them like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood up like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy boasted, I will pursue, I will overtake them. I will divide the spoils, I will gorge myself on them. I draw my sword, and and my hand will destroy them. But you, with your breath, you blew your breath, and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who among the gods is, is like you, Lord? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. You stretch out your hand, and the earth swallows your enemies. In your unfailing love, you will lead your people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall on them. By the power of your arm, they will be as as still as a stone until your people pass by, Lord, until the people you bought pass by. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance, the place, Lord, you made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, Lord, your hands have established. The Lord reigns forever and ever. When Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought the waters of the sea back over them. But the Israelites walked through the sea on dry ground. Then Miriam, the prophet, Aaron's sister, took a timbrel in her hand, and all the women followed her with timbrels and dancing. Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted, both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea.
1: Thanks, Joe. So we carry on in the journey of Exodus, and I hope it's been as thrilling for you as it has for me. And I hope those of you that are mourning the loss of Bloberg Connected Group are able to still stay focused with me. There is better for us. So um, it's cool to be together. Thanks for joining us. There are some who continue to join us online, and it's great to be together with those who are with us. Is everybody awake this morning? Cool. Cool. We just listened to a song. I mean, some of those words you can't imagine singing in our generation, right? I can't see Tashas up on the band singing through some of those things. But um, it is a song nonetheless, and we're looking at... A moment where Miriam leads the people of Israel into this amazing song of celebration because the people of Israel have crossed through the Red Sea, are on the other side, and have done what they never thought would ever be possible. That out of the Pharaoh's oppressive rule as slaves, they could have actually walked out, in fact been asked to leave, and not only that, walk out with this incredible sense of wealth, because they got given all sorts of stuff, you read that, and they walk out of Egypt and are given all this amazing riches towards freedom, and they're actually asked to leave. How many oppressed nations get requested by the ruler, please would you go? I know you hold so much of our economic power in the fact that you are free labor for us, but go. (laughs) Go worship God and do what you need to do. Only by the hand of God could that be, and only could that be able to happen through a parting of waters unless God was doing it. And one of Miriam's high points in this whole song that she sings is in verse 18. I don't know if you remember it, but she sings this song with the people where she says this, The Lord reigns forever and ever. Now, if you remember, uh, in the very first moment when we started to look at Exodus, we saw that this whole journey is the clashing of two powers. You've got the God of Egypt against the God of Israel, and really both are saying, who's really the king? Who's really in charge of the world? Who's really the one who has ultimate say over who is the one? And we saw that it's a great showdown. And this is really the end of the showdown. This is singing about the showdown. And this is the, the climax of the song that says, the Lord reigns. He is king. And Pharaoh, by deduction, is not king. Pharaoh is no longer the one who reigns. It is God, the God of the scriptures, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who has been shown to be the true ruler of everything. This is what the people are singing about, and this climax is that the Lord is king. No longer is Pharaoh king, but the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is king. The great showdown is completed, and if it was a a boxing match, and you've got both boxes, God's hand has been raised. He is the king, and everybody goes, he is the victor. That's what's been happening. We're going to go through this story slowly. We're going to pick up where they leave Egypt, and we're going to pick up and walk through as they get through the Red Sea today, and we're going to learn a little bit about who this God is. Now, we did our first family camping trip. Give me a round of applause, because that takes a lot of bravery and courage. Thank you. And Nikki, a round of applause. Well done to her, because she also needed bravery and courage. And we went camping, and we uh, borrowed every piece of equipment. We don't own one stitch of camping equipment, except one of those fold-out chairs. We did contribute something. So we took our fold-out chair and all our borrowed equipment, and we went camping. And One of our uh, highlights of the camping trip was we all went to bed at the same time. We were all exhausted, sort of 7.45. We've eaten our food. We've been in the sun all day, and we're baked out beautifully. And uh, Nix and I are sandwiching our three little girls on either side of the tent, and we're all lying on our backs, and it's one of those super giggly times, and we've all got the giggles, and we're all chatting away. And our littlest, Anna, she's three years old, she says, can we play the... And she often takes a long time to say what she wants to say. Yes, Anna, what do you want to play? Uh, Can can we play the... And we're going, what game does Anna want to play? She wants to play... Eventually we work out, can we play the would-you-rather game? The would-you-rather game is one of our favorite pastimes. And the would-you-rather game is as simple as it sounds. Would you rather do this... Or this. It can be really positive, it can be really negative. I tend to always go towards the dog bowls when I do the would you rather game. Would you rather eat uh, your supper out of Max's dog bowl? Or would you rather have only Max's water out of his dog bowl? For the next two days, which would you rather do? And uh, the girls are like, oh, man, I don't know. And eventually they'll, they'll go half-half. I just eat my supper once out of the dog bowl. I can't think of drinking the water all the time out of his bowl. So, and, and we have positive ones. Would you rather go to this holiday destination or that one? And it's just so much fun. And uh, anyway, we had a fun one the, the one night. And uh, I, I asked the question, I said, would you rather... First I said, where's your favorite holiday destination? So they, uh, one said, I want to go to the Maldives. She discovered the Maldives, Chloe. And uh, Josie said, I want to go to the North Pole. Cool. And uh, so these are their two favorite places they would love to go. So I said, okay, think about your favorite destination. Now, would you rather go camping with all of us? Camping they're enjoying, but there are some tough patches to it. Um, would you rather go camping with mom and I and your family, or would you rather go to your favorite destination, except mom and I aren't with you, it's just you with the Trump family? <laughs> <laughs> so it's like a test. You know, we're going, What would you rather do? And uh, Trump's, you got some good and some bad feedback coming your way. So Josie goes, oh, no, no, I'm staying with you guys, I'm camping, no ways, I'm not going with any other family anywhere, and that's like so true to her nature. Chloe, without thinking, she goes, I'm going to the Maldives with the trumps, no doubt, that's what I'm doing. And uh, I found myself reflecting on the story and looking at the story of the Exodus and realizing that God is revealing himself to the people of Israel because he knows that the rest of their life is a very long would-you-rather game, whereby they are kind of continuously find themselves going, would you rather go with God or would you rather go by yourself? Would you rather trust God or would you rather trust yourself? And I know that Chloe wouldn't say yes to going to the Maldives with anyone. She said yes because she knows them. She knows that the Trumps are pretty cool people. Mark and Shireen are lovely and fun, and the kids are cool, and they laugh together loads. And she can imagine that working because she trusts what she's saying yes to. You see, life is always a kind of would-you-rather game. And it's dependent, especially in your relationship with, with God, as to who you believe Him to be. If he's good and kind and loving and gracious, then you get to your crossroads in life and you find yourself going, would you rather go with God? Yeah, of course, because he's loving and good and kind. Or would you rather go your own way? Yeah, of course, because I prefer my way. Whatever it is, we get to these crossroads and there are multiple of them all over the show. And really, the journey of the Exodus is God preparing the people so that they understand who he is, so that they can make some better decisions. You see, if you and I understood exactly who God was and how good he actually is, the life of would you rather would become incredibly easy. But we are immensely forgetful, unfortunately. And we often, when we get to the would you rathers, we go, I would rather trust me, actually. I would rather trust in Dot, dot, dot. You finish the sentence, and I'll provide a whole bunch of options. But today I want to walk through the journey of the Exodus and see who God reveals himself to be, because he knows that the people of of Israel are going to need to know what he's like, and they're going to need to trust in him if they are going to find themselves making good decisions in the would-you-rather adventure of life. So what is this king like? If he is the king who reigns, what is he like? Who has he revealed himself to be in these verses, 13 through 15? Well, let's pick up in verse 31 of chapter 12, where it says this. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites, go. Worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds as you have said, and go and bless me. Amazingly, Pharaoh actually asks for a blessing. He has been so humbled that he says, and bless me, please. But amazingly, we see this first moment where they're moving out. They get this revelation that he is the king who delivers from the hands of darkness. This God that the Israelites have begun to see is a God who delivers from the hands of darkness. He takes great joy in seeing people who are oppressed and releasing them, delivering them, taking them out from under oppressive spaces and bringing them into his loving and beautiful embrace. It's an astonishing story. It's astonishing that the Pharaoh would request that these people get released. This is what God likes to do and what God wants to do in your and my life. He loves to take us out of oppressive and difficult situations internally and externally and to liberate us from these difficult scenarios, these these oppressive experiences. He's a God who doesn't want us oppressed by darkness, by depression, by by all kinds of, of things that come about in our lives that are brought on by sin and Satan and death. He loves to deliver us. But it does require faith. It does require a kind of trust. And it's true even in the fulfillment in the gospel in that Jesus calls us to trust him. It's not easy, by the way. There's so much of this story that the Egyptians, you'll see, that the the, the, the Israelites, you'll see actually at times will go, We actually think it was easier back in Egypt. It's going to happen. As you read this story more and more, you're going to find that the Israelites go, We wish we could just go back. Now we read it in hindsight and we go, You Israelites, the moment you ever say you would rather be back in Egypt, you are nuts. You surely have lost your mind if you would ever think that you'd rather be back in Egypt, except that in their life experience when maybe they didn't have food or they didn't have water or they felt terrified that some army was going to overtake them, they were going, do you know what? Sure, that Pharaoh was oppressive. Sure, we were slaves. Sure, we didn't have our own economic freedom, but at least we didn't have an army coming over us right now. But they didn't realize that God delighted in delivering. God delighted in releasing them. He delighted in walking with them and delivering them from oppression and darkness. He loves to do it. I wonder if you know that. I wonder if there's any patterns or habits in your own life where maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's a a, a pattern of life. It's a pattern of thinking where you find, do you know what? It's just easier to stay here than to actually move out, to trust that Jesus delights in moving you forward. He wants to walk with you through your depression. He wants to walk with you through your addiction. He wants to walk with you through these dark and difficult relational times. He doesn't want to leave you in unhelpful and difficult patterns. He wants to move you forward. Would you rather trust yourself, or would you rather trust the one who loves to deliver from darkness? Let's keep looking. The next question, I think, is would you rather trust the king who leads and guides by wisdom? The, the people get sent out of, of Egypt by the Pharaoh. And in verse 17 of chapter 13, it says this, When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road towards the sea. This is infinitely wise. It's a beautiful picture of a God who understands the details of life. And he's not a distant, generic God who slaps an idea down for humanity and goes, that's the only way it works. He brings detailed wisdom to the details of our lives. And in this case, you've got these people called the Israelites who have just been freed from Egypt who are basically going, we've never done this before. We've actually become quite comfortable. 400 years in in Egypt, we learned the ways of Egypt. We are pretty happy here. Now we're getting liberated, but if we were to face an army right now, we would turn back and run to Pharaoh and say, please take us back. And God knows that. God understands the limitations of the people of Israel, and he says, I'm not going to take you the short route. The short route would get you where you need to be in a couple of days or months. The long route is going to take you much longer, but you know what? It's going to get you where you need to go. And sometimes in God's wisdom, he says, take the long route. I'm going to walk you around this, and it's going to be day in and day out, which is going to turn into months and years and maybe even decades. But the speed of that process is going to be in the wisdom of God because he knows what we need. And, and he's calling us into his wisdom. He's calling us into his timing. He's calling us to trust that he actually knows what we need. And how many of us, especially when it comes to wisdom and timing, look at God's wisdom and we look at our own ideas and we go, "Uh uh-uh, I think I'm going to go my way. Would you rather? Would you rather trust God's wisdom or would you rather trust your own? Would you rather go this thing alone or would you trust that God knows best and that he's really wise? And I reckon that 50% of these guys would have said, we know the route is quicker here. We know we could just pop over that mountain, through that army. But God says, no, no, no. You go there, you're going to lose at least half your people. Not, because, not to war, but to fear. Come with me. And I wonder how we're doing in trusting God in his wisdom and, and in fact actually getting wisdom, accumulating wisdom. James famously reminds us, if anyone lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives wisdom planning our preaching for next year and we're looking at trying to to look at some scriptures and some passages in scripture possibly the book of James and and looking at how much wisdom God wants to give us. We're in an age that so desperately needs to go back to the wisdom of God and learn to live in the ways of Jesus and in his wisdom. Thirdly, he's a king who guides by his presence. Would you rather go it alone in your own presence or would you rather go with the presence of God? 13 verse 21, by day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way and by night a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. I just can't imagine what this is like. Uh, It must have been a a pretty fascinating sight to see a cloud by day, a fire by night, but the point of this story is that God led his people. The the ancient uh, kind of understanding of a king was that he sat on a throne from a distance and he barked orders through his uh, people who would go and then give orders to the people. He would never go amongst the people. His presence was so sacred and so holy. And of course, we know in the the book of Exodus, God's presence is sacred and holy. But even as you track forward and you look at the story of the Exodus, it is shocking how close God wants to be to his people. So whilst they don't have the famous tabernacle, which is amongst the people of Israel, what you have is this pillar of cloud by day and this pillar of fire by night, this king who leads from within the camp. Ultimately, you get a God who comes and he puts uh, in the people of Israel the Ten Commandments, which is the wisdom and the ways of God, and it's inside the, the Ark of the Covenant, and the Ark of the Covenant is in this throne room, which represents the place where the king is seated. But most amazingly, this Ark of the Covenant doesn't move ahead of the people. It moves in the middle of the people. This is a king who is surrounded east and west, north and south, by the tribes of Israel. It's unheard of in the Near East of the time. Kings would make a deal with the people that he, they had conquered and then would rule from a distance. Here you have a king who comes and presences himself right in the middle of the people. This is so crucial to the Christian faith. Ultimately, it's fulfilled in Jesus. Uh, John chapter 1, where G- uh, the John writes and he says, God became flesh and dwelt among us. He tabernacled Amongst us. That is the very word dwelt, comes from this word where uh, God comes in the Exodus and dwells among the people. This God is unlike any God you can imagine who doesn't rule from a distance but rules from amongst and wants to be close to. Would you rather just trust your own presence? Hey, I've got me and I'm cool and, and I'm strong and I've got everything I need, or I trust that God is with me, that He wants to come amongst my life. He wants to love me from inside, from amongst me and from amongst us. Think about it. Best coach that you've ever had on the sports field? Best teacher? Best kinds of parents that you can imagine? Think about them. Go back to your childhood. Imagine that your favorite coach, your your favorite teacher. Typically, for me, if it was a coach, it was the, not the one who stayed in his, his, his teaching outfit. It was the one who put on his PT shorts, and he came and he played the game with us. And he would tackle, and he would let us tackle him, and we would play sport together. He became present. It was the parent who you looked at, and it was for me, it was both my parents loved to get into our lives, wanted to play with us, didn't want to create activities for us, but would create activities to participate in. I go fishing this weekend because I got taught how to fish by a dad who took me fishing. We have a God who wants to take us through life present with us. That's the story of the gospel. That's the story of the kind of king who rules from on high as the king who actually wants to come in and be amongst us. He's also the king who fights for his people so that we can rest in him. Look at Exodus 14, verse 5. It says, When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We've let the Israelites go and have lost their services. How astounding. This is so dramatic. They've, the, the, the firstborn son has, has died in all of Egypt. He has been so humbled. He says, Go. Then as they go, he has another change of heart. This is time 11 that he turns back and he goes, Never. My pride will not let these people go. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt, with officers over all of them. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Moses, was it because there, was no, there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? How's that? They've got a sense of humor, even in amongst their terrified state. What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Next slide. The waters were divided. Oh, sorry, go back. So here we go. He's a king who fights for his people. Moses uh, answered the people. I think we missed out verse 13. Yeah, we did. Apologies. It says this, Moses answered the people, do not be afraid, stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring to you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. In verse 14, listen to this, because it's not on the screen. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. This is a power passage. This is a moment in their lives where they're looking at Moses and saying, Did you think that we were going to come out here just so that we could die in the desert? We would have rather died in the comfort of Egypt. But now you've taken us here. And God says, Don't worry. I will fight for you. They must have been so disillusioned in that point. And you know, as I look around the world, and I even look around our spheres and our circles in our community, the people who feel the most embittered, disappointed, grumpy, struggling with anger, are often the people who say, nobody fights for me. There's there's no one who fights for me. There's no politician who fights for me. There's no economy that fights for me. Even my loved ones don't defend me when I need them. And there's this sense of bitterness in people's lives because they just don't feel like anybody really fights for them. Who are you trusting to fight for you? Who are you trusting to stand there in the gap and to defend you when all the arrows of life are thrown at you and all the difficulties come your way and the economy isn't working and everything else that you hoped would work isn't working? What are you depending on to fight for you? Because if it's not God, you will become bitter, not bitter. You will become so disillusioned with life. The call in this passage, is that we would stand firm. It's a foregone conclusion what happens. We know what happens to the people of Israel. We know that they cross through the Red Sea. We know that God does fight for them. But the question is, is do you know that God will fight for you? And the answer is, you only know if you see the fulfillment of this story in Jesus Christ. You only know if you take the story forward into the story of Jesus Christ. This is a story for a nation of Israel, but it wasn't the finished story. The finished story was the story of Jesus, whereby he went to a cross, and he stood on our behalf and got what we should have got so that we could get what we should never get, in that we get a God who fights for us. And he is a king. And he is one who is decisively and beautifully loving. The call is to stand firm. What are you doing in the would you rather game of life? Are you choosing the king who will fight for you? Or are you choosing to defend yourself and keep leaning into your own wisdom and keep leaning into your own ways and keep leaning into your own best ideas rather than standing firm, slowing down, and letting Him fight for you. I realize a lot of this is quite, uh, it's quite heady. You're like, well, what does that mean if my business isn't working? What does that mean if I'm struggling in marriage? Let me tell you what it usually often means. is We don't have all the answers, but we stand firm by picking up the phone, by going, hey, I need some help. We stand firm by going to a brother after a meeting or a sister and going, can I pray with you? I need wisdom and I don't know where to go. This is not a, a kind of thing for individuals to just solve their problems all by themselves and go, you know what, my faith is so great, I solved it all. It's usually expressed in community, it's worked out in a together space because these answers are so nuanced and each of our lives are so unique. And so, this expression of faith is usually always done together. Okay, fifthly, he's the king of an upside down kingdom. We keep reading, the waters were divided. How that exactly worked, I wish I could tell you. Was it nature? Was it coincidental that winds blew and moved the seas? Was it God by his mighty hand doing it all? I would say the answer is yes. <laughs> he did it, and he used nature, and we don't know exactly how it worked. I think some of the aquarium pictures that we get in the Prince of Egypt where you see the fishies swimming is probably not too accurate, um, But the the waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all the Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving, and the Egyptians said, Let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. It's a kind of conclusion of this thrilling story going from a little baby in a papyrus basket who gets raised in a palace, who then uh, through his own poor decisions gets himself into the pastures in, in, in a faraway place, but this prince comes back and he redeems a people And he calls them out, and through all these plagues, eventually the hardened heart of the pharaoh says, Okay, you can go, and ultimately leads them out, and they eventually cross over and take a long journey till the pharaoh says, No, you can't go, and he chases after them one last time, and they sneak out. It's a bit like those uh, action movies where it's like, The movie must be over now. I don't know if you remember those ones. Like, Surely the bad guy is eventually finished. And he's lying on the ground and he's like got no strength left. And suddenly you see him reaching down for his like secret pocket that's hiding behind. And he pulls out his little whatever weapon he's got. And the good guy thinks he's won. And he's walking towards his maiden who he saved. And he sees the maiden suddenly pull out her bow and arrow, shoots it over his shoulder. And eventually the dead guy dies. And it's like, whew, like 55th time this dead guy has risen. He is eventually finished. This is what happens here. It's like he tries one last arrogant attempt to take down the Israelites. But what's fascinating is that in doing that, he actually plays into the hands. He exalts God. He shows the power of God to free and to liberate and to completely win the battle. It has to lead you to the story of the gospel. You see, when Satan, at his very most arrogant and angry, thinks that he is going to defeat God, it's in the very moment that he is helping and participating in crowning him. He inspires and motivates a group of people to get really nasty and mock him. So what's the first thing they do? They put a very horrible crown of thorns. The king gets crowned. Why put a crown on him but to mock him? And yet he is getting a crown to show how loving he is as heaven and earth's true king. You know what else they do? And the, the Jews were furious with this. They put a plaque over his, his uh, cross, and it says, King of the Jews. And you know what else? It's put up in three different languages so that any person who came there could read it and go, King of the Jews? Really? Really? It's astounding that in the best efforts of darkness, there was this crowning moment of the true king. That in the darkest moments, God was showing his deepest love, and showing that actually it was love that conquered over death. In showing that it was actually God's greatest moment of glory was when he went to the cross. He defeated darkness in all of its finality. But the upside-down kingdom is so marvelous the more you dig into it. The more you find yourself looking at the gospel, you see that this is a king who is willing to die to show his love. He is a king who is so willing to step off the throne to show how gracious he actually is. And he turns the darkest parts of our life often into some of the deepest parts of our transformation. And I mean that. I think how my addiction to drugs was the very thing that turned me to dark depression, which turned me to deep reflection, which turned me to the deep love of God. The thing that is so often used to cause you to stick on the ground and never get up became the thing that turned me and has turned so many and helped so many other addicts to find grace. Grace. I think of my fear of speaking and how my fear of peop- speaking to people in public has become so much of a grace to myself as I stand up every Sunday or every time I get to speak and I go, but by your grace, you turned my life on its head. Were I not with you, I could never have considered this. Your weaknesses, your poverty, your joblessness, your fears, your uncertainties, God has this amazing way of turning them upside Down and turning the darkest things into the greatest opportunities for light. I hope you can see this king because you need to keep grappling. We need to keep looking at him because there are going to be so many moments in our life where it's going to be would you rather? Would you rather go it alone? Would you rather trust in your money? Would you rather trust in your career? Would you rather trust in what you can do? Or would you trust a king who's sacrificial and kind, who loves to deliver you from darkness, who loves to free you and and move you into a kingdom of light? Can I ask the band to come up? They're going to lead us in a time of singing, and we're going to ask ourselves in this moment, what would we rather? Where are you at? What would you rather what space are you in and, and what are some of the impending forks in the road that you are going to face? And as we worship, I wonder if you would let the Holy Spirit prepare you, empower you, strengthen you for the multiple moments of forks in the road where you go, I would rather go with the king. I'm tempted. I want to go with my own wisdom, but I want to trust him. And as the king begins to lead and guide, we start to build a track record that we've done better, that his leadership, his guidance, his kindness is far more preferable than ours. Let's pray. Let's stand. Father, this morning we thank you that you are kind and you are good and you are gracious. and We ask that you would help us with the power of your spirit to see that you are a present God who loves to deliver us, who loves to free us, who loves to call us into the kingdom of light, who loves to show us by his presence what he is like. And we pray this morning that we would see your goodness. For those of us in very difficult forks in the road moments, I pray that you would help us to see your faithfulness, to see your trustworthiness, to lean into you and to lean into the community you've provided by faith so that we can trust you as we sing. By the power of your spirit, guide us into trusting you evermore. Thank you that you're not a distant king. You're an intimate and close one. Pray that we would feel that intimacy and that closeness even now as we enjoy this time together.